Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to be looking at the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 20, verses 27 uh, to 38. And uh, it's a story, it's, it's the confrontation between Jesus and the Sadducees over the fact of the, of the resurrection. And it begins, some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, approach Jesus and put this question to him. Before we hear the question, who were the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were a, a group of leaders within Jerusalem um, of the Hebrews who had basically become absolute clients of the Roman Empire. And the Romans, as we know, were an occupying, occupying force in Palestine. And that the Sadducees um, gave up a great deal of, of Jewish tradition in order to be uh, acceptable to the Romans. And uh, they rejected large parts of the scriptures. They rejected most of the Old Testament, except the five books of Moses, except the Torah, and uh, they therefore and they therefore denied the resurrection. And um, so they did not believe not only in the resurrection of the dead, but but they uh, they they believed in no kind of of afterlife at all, which means. It's, it's very difficult to see how they intended to have the people follow the, the Torah if, uh, if they felt that, you know, this is all there is, there isn't anymore. We certainly know that feeling in our contemporary society. We, we see all sorts of people um, deciding to end their life um, because it no longer has any meaning or purpose for them because their whole meaning and purpose has been invested in themselves in their present state. And when they can't have out of life what they want, um, then the idea of ending it is, uh, be becomes a rather popular alternative than to living with disappointment. And so it's possible, I suppose, to, to live without the thought of an afterlife. Um, but it's hard to see how religious leaders in any way could entice people into following the religion if there were no consequences for it. Um, if there was no act of, of final justice. However, the Sadducees, for whatever their reasons might have been, did not believe in the resurrection, and so they came to Jesus and they wanted to ridicule Jesus' belief in the resurrection. They approached their enemies, of course, were the Sadducees, and, um, and they approached Jesus as just simply another one of the, of, the, of, the, of the Pharisees, I mean, and he was just another one of the Pharisee rabbis, as far as they were concerned. So they decided they would stump him, and we know that this happens all the time in, in the Gospels, that different groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, and, and uh, tried to trip him up and get him to identify himself with a partisan position. And in identifying with himself with a partisan position, he, of course, then can be dismissed as being part of our enemy, part of those who, you know, who, who we look down upon. And so they said to him, Master, we have it from Moses in writing that if a man's married 
brother dies childless, the man must marry the widow to raise up the children for his brother. They're referring to Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, which is uh, the so-called Leverite or brother-in-law provision of the Torah. There's a great deal of question as to whether this was ever really enforced or not, but at least it's open to debate, and now the Sadducees decide to use this um, in an argument against the Lord. So um, the reason that it's in Deuteronomy was that you were supposed to preserve the name and the memory of a man who had been so unfortunate, and also um, to ensure that the bloodline from the family continued, because in that bloodline from the family was generation upon generation eternal life. It also protected property from being outside the family, because in those days, both, um, both the man and the woman could inherit. That was to go away later on in the rabbinic law. But at this time, in this particular law, they have, um, they, they have a, um, a provision for that to, to be, be carried on. All right, so they now pick a kind of an obscure um, mandate from, from the book of Deuteronomy, um, knowing uh, full well that it's not something that has been practiced. It's not something that probably was a very dominant theme in, in ancient Israel. So they said, Moses, we have it in writing from Moses that if a man's married brother dies childless, the man must marry the widow to raise up children for his brother. And we talked about that. That has property, but also bloodline. Well then, they said, there were seven brothers. The first having married a wife died childless. The second and the third married the widow. And the same with all seven. They all died leaving no children. Finally, the woman herself died. Now at the resurrection, to which of them will she be wife since she had been married to all seven? And here they reveal something of what they, what they disdain in the whole idea of the resurrection. That for them, it's apparently so that the resurrection of the dead simply means the reanimation of corpses and life goes on with joy and happiness, with uh, love and hate and with all of the other emotions that, that carry on in our lives. So they're saying now she's had seven husbands and which husband is she going to now um, spend the rest, the rest of her time with? And, uh, and they see this as an earthly existence. I, I, I do believe that this um, principle of the Sadducees has in the contemporary world been picked up by the Jehovah Witnesses, I believe. They believe that paradise will be here on earth and life will go on and so forth. So Jesus now is faced, they've obviously made the question as absurd as possible. They've used the number seven, which is a, seven, which is a number that, in, that in, includes the implications of, of many. And, uh, and they reveal their belief in the resurrection is simply the reanimation of the human body. And Jesus replies to them and says, The children of this world take wives and husbands. But those who are judged worthy of a place in the other world and in the resurrection from the dead do not marry because they can no longer die for they are the same as the angels and being children of the resurrection, they are the sons of God. 
So he says now, first of all, that this whole idea of marriage is a temporal idea, that it's, it's a process by which um, people live and grow and learn to love, um, are fruitful in their children, and, and propagate the peoples of the earth, and so forth. And this is, this is a di very difficult thing sometimes for widows and widowers when they hear this. But those judged worthy of a place in the other world and in the resurrection from the dead do not marry because they can no longer die, for they are the same as the angels. Two things here that become problematic oftentimes, and that is if a husband or a wife loses their partner and if they have had a very close and deep relationship all of their lives, then obviously the idea of them having eternal happiness without the constant companionship of the other is incomprehensible. But you know, there are many incomprehensible things about the resurrection of the dead. We have no idea, we, we, we don't know particulars about life after death, except what Jesus tells us. And this text can be taken in two ways, and that is that that same kind of love relationship that the husband and the wife had in this world, they will have with God in the end, along with their former husbands and wives, and that together they will enjoy and have a depth of life that they could not even comprehend in this world. The other implication is, and this comes up in, in the gospel, in the writings of St. Paul, the other is the implications of those who truly believe in the resurrection um, to be celibate. And, uh, and this is a great time then for us to look at what it means to be celibate. Um, you know, this, this is a great opportunity because we, we already talked about maybe the fruitfulness, the fruitlessness and the meaninglessness of, of the belief of the Pharisees. And so in the Christian world, there has to be a radical witness to a belief in the afterlife. If there is no afterlife, the idea of celibacy is absurd. If there is an afterlife, then it functions as a way to give a strong Christian witness to the community, that at the heart and the core of the community, in the sacramental center of the community, there is a strong and firm belief that there is a resurrection of the dead and that there is an afterlife. For the life of the celibate clergy makes no, makes no sense if in fact they do not enjoy the fullness of love in the resurrection of the dead. So that celibacy becomes not just, a, we, we hear all the time, well, celibacy is just a discipline and it can be changed. Well, technically speaking, that's true, but it also wipes out a, pop, a very powerful witness to the resurrection that exists and has existed within the church from the beginning. And then you read amateur historians who say, well, it didn't come in until the 11th century. And, uh, and they're, they're referring that, of course, to the reign of Gregory VII and, and his, his crackdown on concubinage. Did priests violate celibacy throughout the ages? They certainly did. Was it common, um, more common than it should have been? Yes. Um, however, it was, in fact, on the, based on the image of Jesus Christ and of St. Paul, whom we know not to have been married and therefore to have been celibates. And that despite uh, Nicholas uh, Kazanstakos and his uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, Jesus was never married. 
and, uh, and there is no in indication in the Gospels that he ever was. That's taking great liberty. It's a literary phenomenon. It made a good story, but it has nothing to do with Revelation, and therefore nothing to do with the truth of the situation. So at any rate, then, celibacy has been in the order of the church in the days of Jesus himself. It has been followed well or not so well through the ages, that's true. But the idea, well, it wasn't imposed as a discipline until the 11th century is simply false. Um, the Eastern Church, of course, recognizing the difficult of celibacy in many, many men's lives, that they allow their priests to be married, but they preserve the celibate sign in their bishops, for a bishop cannot be a man who has been married. And therefore the majority of the Eastern, of the Eastern uh, bishops have been, have been monks. Um, but at any rate, I think it's important for us to realize, and here Jesus makes it very clear, that not to marry or be given in marriage is a sign of a deep faith in the resurrection. And, uh, and I think that we can appreciate that as extant within the church, and we can appreciate the fact that there are those who are willing to take that on for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's not only the priests, but it's also the monks and the religious women who provide the same kind of witness. Um, their lives, oftentimes having been austere and, uh, and totally generous, um, would be very difficult for people to imagine in a romantic way if in fact it were not also a powerful belief in the resurrection of the dead. So, one of two things is in this text. One of them is, is that the love that we find in the person of Jesus Christ and that we share with all humanity is, is, transcends even the love of a husband and wife in this world. And that also celibacy is an important sign, a very important sign and witness to belief in the resurrection of the dead. So that it is a sign counter to the belief of the Sadducees. And this is why Jesus brings it up here, because he wants them to know that the life of the risen body is not in fact just another day on earth, having been reanimated from the dead. That it is a transformation, and that in that transformation we become capable of a love that is in, we are incapable of knowing while we are still in the flesh. And then Jesus goes on and says, Moses himself implies that the dead rise again in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now if he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all men are in fact alive. So he goes back and he stays, Jesus goes back and he stays, he stays with this whole image of, of, the, uh, of the Torah. So he goes back to the encounter that Moses has with the burning bush. And that in the burning bush, God identifies himself. And we know from the Gospel of John that this voice is the voice of the Son, the voice of the Word. And that he attests to the fact that God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. If the ancestors are dead, or just simply dead, then the promise to Abraham of immortality from the covenant, then when he was when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac to the Lord, 
that that covenant that God made with him at that time, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea, meant that because his blood would be in the veins of his descendants, he would live, and he would live as long as his descendants lived on earth. And extending that to a huge multitude of people ensured, as far as the earth was concerned, that Abraham was alive. And they did not have a sense, actually, of kind of the end of the world. So basically, what Jesus is saying is that you will have no life in you if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. For the thing that makes you a chosen people, the thing that makes you elect, is the blood of these ancestors in your veins. That you, in fact, are the perpetuation of their lives. And if they are not alive, then neither are you. And if you are not alive, then there is no hope and no meaning in your life. But, he says, so God is not the God of the dead because he is the one that gives eternal life, whether it be in the resurrection of the dead or in the descendants of the patriarchs. Um, but he is the God of the living, for to him all men are in fact alive. This testimony to the power of life within the world is a most profound reflection as well. And that, as a matter of fact, he has two different arguments here then. One, celibacy as the witness to the transformation of the human person in the resurrection. And two, the idea of there is not even in the sense of the Torah, is there eternal life if the covenant to Abraham means nothing, if it is void and, and, and null. And if, in fact, it proclaims Abraham dead and Isaac dead and Jacob dead, then so are the people of Israel dead. Um, they are dead to their God, they are dead to their covenant, and they are dead to the future. And, uh, and this the Sadducees would have to deal with because they certainly believe in the extension um, through the descendancy from Abraham. So all in all, then, the gospel takes on the issue of the resurrection of the dead, takes it on in a dramatic sort of way, um, dismisses many false notions of it, such as resurrection simply being the reanimation of dead bodies that continue to live their lives as they have lived them before. The idea that somehow or other um, you carry on the institutions in, intended for the sanctification of ourselves in this world into the next, and that because they are no longer there the instruments of salvation, they have become then the realization of that salvation. And then he challenges the Sadducees also because they have, in fact, by what they not believing in the resurrection of the dead, they have denied, in a way, the covenant with Abraham. And therefore, the whole raison d'etre of their existence. For if there is no chosen people, if there is no people of the covenant, then their positions and their power and so forth is meaningless. When we take all of this then and we wrap this into the modern day, what we begin then to understand is that these battles, these discussions and so forth that went on with Jesus in the Gospels are not just wrapped up in history. They're not just wrapped up in time. These are, these are 
dialogues and discussions that will go on effectively until the end of time. And so we have to ask ourselves, well then, in what way do these apply to us? How do we take this into our contemporary lives? And how do we understand what Jesus is trying to explain to every culture in every age which is riddled with disbelief? And the first thing, of course, that we find out is that, first of all, if you are going to accept the scriptures, you accept all the scriptures. You don't do what the Sadducees say. You reject everything but the Torah. Um, you don't do what, what the Gnostics said in the first two centuries of Christianity. They rejected almost all the Old Testament because they believed that the God of the Old Testament was material and was evil and was wicked. Of the New Testament, they had all sorts of problems because of the, uh, because of the humanity of Jesus. And they basically accepted only parts of the Gospel of St. Luke. Um, when we come to the Reformation, Martin Luther decides that he's going to eliminate certain books um, from the Bible because they don't correspond to what his personal beliefs are. And one of the books that he rejected, it's still, it's still in the Protestant Bible now, but he rejected it, was the letter of James, where it says, um, faith without works is dead. And so Luther said, well, I tasted it, and it tasted like straw. And so he dismissed it from the canon of the New Testament. There are several books, of course, that have come out um, as, uh, as unacceptable in, 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 the, uh, in the Protestant Bible. And uh, it's called the technical term for the, for the books in, in, in Protestantism is pseudepigrapha. Um, but uh, it's, it's, they, they say that they are not canonical books. And part of it is part of what Luther got rid of too with Judith and Esther because um, women did, should not play that, that significant a part in the story of salvation. Um, they, they, were, they were supposed to be housewives and they were supposed to disappear. Um, when, when he destroyed, for instance, the monasteries and convents, the women who were young enough were forced into marriage um, in order that this idea of celibacy as a witness to the resurrection would be wiped out in the Christian people and women would no longer be able to be educated or be able to uh, function at high levels as many of the religious women did in the Middle Ages. Um, and so, so that enters into our understanding and certainly in the modern world. The idea of a disbelief in the resurrection fuels a fanaticism about the present. That, um, that there is a certain amount of patience and a certain amount of perspective that enter into our lives when we do believe that we are destined for eternity, that we are destined for another life. Um, <clears throat> and therefore, while we fulfill the obligations we have to the care of the universe that the Lord has given to us, the care of creation, it does not become an obsession. Um, it does not become some way where people act out in the most bizarre personal ways and also become kind of political fanatics about the power of humanity in the midst of creation. We do have the obligation but, but to say somehow or other that if we're not in charge of the world and if we are not subjected to those who are wise within the world, then we will destroy creation. And of course, that's ridiculous. It's impossible. 
um, damage the earth? Certainly, and we have done that. But destroy it? Probably not. The earth has a resiliency to it, and if we become too abusive, it will take care of it itself. But the idea being this, that in every age we have this fanaticism that is born of a lack of faith in the resurrection of the dead. We see it in some of the, we see it in, in many of the, of the political and social f fanaticism of our present age. The, 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 the somehow enshrining homosexuality um, as, as kind of a gift of virtue um, is, is an insult to the people that really believe and really struggle with that. To believe that it's all right to take God's creation and mutilate it um, because we're autonomous, we're self-creating, there is no creator, there is no God. And that's exactly, you know, the idea of taking the life of children, um, the, the, great, the great slaughter of children that goes on in our country and in the Western world. If we believe, they, because those children, as far as the ideologues go, have no right to live because they're intrusive into their mothers and you often hear, well, you know, they would be born into poverty and, um, and they would not have a real chance in life. A real chance in life to do what? To get rich and then die? To get famous and die? To uh, enjoy uh, all sorts of physical pleasures and then die? Is that, is, is that what they're being deprived of? They're being, no, it's not. But what, that's what the ideologues are saying. And they're playing God. God is the Lord of the living and the dead. The God is the Lord, and the God is the Lord of creation. Not some random person who say, I guess I'll kill this person. Or not someone in a difficult situation who is enticed, and we know that happens all the time, into a very radical decision about the taking of the life of a child. Um, it's, it's the same way. I mean, we, we have problems. People have problems. They struggle with problems. That's part, of our, that's part of our sanctification is how do we handle the difficulties in our lives? How do we deal with them? And how do we suffer with the Lord in this life for the salvation of others? All of that, no. This says, no, since there is no resurrection, then we are in charge. We are the creators. And we, therefore, can mutilate as we please because in that is my freedom. Um, and, and Jean Lyotard, the, the, the French uh, de deconstructionist, uh, says, you know, that uh, in fact is it's ideal to, um, to go under surgery, to change your looks, to change your sex, to change all that kind of thing. Because then that makes you free, because you're free, because you're in charge of your own life and not some god, some not some god is that dreadful song and uh, that we used to sing has not some god in heaven light years away. Um, no, it's, it's like these things are a denial of the creator God and those people who say they are Roman Catholics and espouse those are either delusional or hypocritical. And the fact of the matter is their presumptions are simply untrue. You cannot say, I believe in God, and then deny his existence. You cannot say, I believe in God, and then act as though that God is me. We can't do that. That's not, that's not integral. That, that's, that's nothing reasonable. 
And so as we, we face this gospel, we face the modern age, let us resolve in our own hearts to know that there is a life beyond this one. It is somehow forever. We reach in it the fulfillment of our personhood, and we look forward to it with faith and with hope, willing to suffer the difficulties we need to get there, and willing to trust in the providence and the goodness of the living God. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then